Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our foot and ankle series and is part two on our talk of foot and ankle tendinopathies. In this lecture, we will discuss flexor hallucis longus tendinitis as well as posterior tibialis tendinitis and posterior tibial tendon insufficiency. All right, let's get started. Flexor hallucis longus tendinitis is less common than Achilles tendinitis, but is another possible cause of posterior ankle pain. Remember the path of the FHL muscle and tendon. As we discussed in our compartment syndrome talk, it takes a rather unique route from the posterior calf to its insertion on the great toe, which makes it excellent testable material. The FHL originates on the back of the fibula within the deep posterior compartment of the leg. It travels down the back of the leg, traveling between the posterior medial and posterior lateral tubercles of the talus. It then continues around the posterior medial aspect of the ankle, passing beneath the sustentaculum tali. It is in this area that it is at risk with aberrant screw placement during calcaneus fracture fixation. After swooping below the sustentaculum tali, it crosses dorsal to the FDL at the knot of Henry. An intersection syndrome developed at the level of this crossing between the FDL and FHL may be another point of irritation to the tendon leading to tenosynovitis. Finally, after passing above the FDL at the knot of Henry, the tendon inserts on the distal phalanx of the great toe. So how does FHL tendonitis at the ankle present? FHL tendonitis can manifest according to the level at which it is being impinged. Impingement at the level of the talus can lead to posterior ankle pain. This is frequently seen in dancers, gymnasts, and sports in which athletes must spend a significant amount of time in the on-point position. Patients with tenosynovitis at a more distal location, either at the level of the sustentaculum tali or the knot of Henry, may present simply with great toe catching or triggering. Pain can typically be reproduced by forced plantar flexion of the ankle or resisted great toe IP flexion. They may have some crepitus at the level of the posterior medial ankle joint. Remember the common mnemonic for the structure order in the posterior medial ankle. Tom, Dick, and a very nervous Henry. Posterior tibialis, flexor digitorum longus, the artery, the vein, the nerve, and flexor hallucis longus. MRI may show fluid around the tendon or an intratendinous degeneration. Treatment typically involves rest and anti-inflammatories. Immobilization is rarely required. Steroid injections are contraindicated due to the proximity of the tibial nerve. In refractory cases, especially those in which an area of constriction can be visualized on MRI, operative releases of the tendon from the overlying fibrosis tunnel and possibly a tenosynovectomy may be in order. For FHL tendonitis, be able to recognize the structures on MRI, as many questions will give you an imaging study and a brief history and really just be testing your ability to orient yourself on MRI. In the case of FHL tendonitis, keep it in your differential if you have a patient that presents with posterior medial ankle pain that is worst with forced plantar flexion and great toe catching. All right, the last structure that we are going to discuss in our foot and ankle tendonitis talk is probably the question writer's favorite to ask about. So we've started anterior and worked our way lateral to the back and started to move back up the medial side. The last structure we're going to discuss is the posterior tibial tendon, and we're going to talk about recognizing and managing its associated condition, posterior tibial tendon insufficiency. The posterior tibial muscle, innervated by the tibial nerve, lies within the deep posterior compartment of the leg. It originates off the back of the fibula, intraosseous membrane, and tibia and travels down the back of the calf, wrapping around the posterior medial aspect of the ankle just posterior to the medial malleolus. It is the Tom in the Tom, Dick, and Very Nervous Henry mnemonic. It wraps around the back of the ankle, posterior to the axis of rotation of the tibiotalar joint, and medial to the subtalar joint. It has three different distal limbs, and therefore three different insertion sites. The anterior limb inserts onto the navicular tuberosity and first cuneiform. 
The medial limb wraps around plantarly and inserts on the second and third cuneiforms, the cuboid and metatarsals 2 through 5. And lastly, the posterior limb inserts on the sustentaculum tali of the plantar aspect of the foot. The posterior tibial tendon does have a vascular watershed area in a remarkably similar pattern to the Achilles tendon. The watershed is between 2 and 6 centimeters from its insertion site, typically lying between the navicular and the medial malleolus. The anatomic arrangement of the posterior tibial tendon makes it a primary dynamic stabilizer of the arch of the foot. Because of its location medial to the subtalar joint, it can act as a hind foot inverter and acts to adduct and supinate the foot during gait. This position also helps with the incredibly important function of locking the transverse tarsal joint, which creates a rigid lever arm during the toe-off phase of gait. And lastly, because the posterior tibialis tendon lines posterior to the axis of the tibiotalar joint, it can be recruited as a secondary plantar flexor of the ankle. So let's digress for a second and talk about the transverse tarsal joint, as I think it has bearing on this topic and can help to better understand some of the pathology associated with posterior tibial tendon insufficiency. The transverse tarsal joint, also known as the Charcot joint, think Charcot amputation, is essentially made up of two different components, the talonavicular and calcaneal cuboid joints. The talonavicular joint is the articulation between the talus and navicular bone and is supported by the spring ligament. The spring ligament is a thick, broad, fibrous band of tissue that runs from the calcaneus to the navicular and is sometimes called the plantar calcaneonavicular ligament. It runs from the anterior aspect of the sustentaculum tali and inserts onto the plantar aspect of the navicular. The tailor head essentially rests directly upon the superior surface of the ligament, while the limbs of the tibialis posterior run medial and inferior on their way to their broad insertion sites. The spring ligament is one of the primary ligaments supporting the medial arch of the foot, so much so that its disruption can cause an acute pes planus deformity. The calcaneal cuboid joint is the articulation between the anterior calcaneus and cuboid and is supported by the calcaneal cuboid ligament and bifurcate ligament. Remember that the calcaneal cuboid joint is a lateral structure and we sometimes see avulsion fractures of the bifurcate ligament at its insertion on the anterior process of the calcaneus during ankle inversion injuries. All right, so what does the transverse tarsal joint do and what bearing does it have on our understanding of posterior tibialis tendon insufficiency? The transverse tarsal joint helps to modify the function of the hind foot during ambulation. During heel strike, it needs to be supple, absorb shock, and be able to accommodate uneven terrain. During the toe-off phase, the hind foot needs to act as a rigid lever arm capable of transmitting force to allow for forward progression. Of note, the plantar aponeurosis is the primary structure for load transmission from the hind foot to the forefoot during the gait cycle. So with regard to the hind foot, at heel strike, the hind foot is everted and the transverse tarsal joints are parallel and unlocked, allowing the hind foot to be supple and accommodative and absorb the shock. As you progress through the gait cycle, the posterior tibial, the posterior tibial tendon fires and the hind foot becomes inverted, this locks the transverse tarsal joint into a rigid structure and is capable of transmitting force for foot toe-off. So what does this have to do with posterior tibial tendon insufficiency? Well, as previously mentioned, the PT tendon is the primary dynamic stabilizer of the medial arch of the foot. As it fails, the medial arch begins to collapse, leading to pain and degenerative changes within the foot. Posterior tibial tendon insufficiency is the most common cause for adult-acquired flat foot deformity. Elderly women tend to be at an increased risk. Other risk factors include obesity and inflammatory disorders. As the posterior tibial tendon becomes incompetent, the secondary stabilizers of the medial arch of the foot 
also begin to fail, including the spring ligament and the plantar fascia. This leads to a progressive flattening of the arch and uncovering of the tailor head. Further progression can lead to a compensatory forefoot abduction and rigid hindfoot valgus deformity. Patients typically present in the early stages with medial ankle pain and variable degrees of foot deformity, including flattening of the medial longitudinal arch, forefoot abduction as indicated by the too many toes sign when viewed posteriorly, and a hindfoot valgus deformity, which may be either flexible or rigid. Some patients may also complain of subfibular pain if the fibula begins to impinge on the lateral structures with progressive collapse. Plain radiographs of the foot and ankle should be obtained and offer some clues as to the degree of deformity. The AP foot x-ray will show uncovering of the tailor head and an increase in the talo first metatarsal angle as the foot falls into abduction. The lateral radiographs may show collapse of the arch. This can be objectively measured via the Miri's angle, which is drawn from a line down the long axis of the talus and a line down the first metatarsal. Any measurement of greater than 4 degrees indicates a pes planus deformity. Any signs of subtalar arthritis or talar tilt on ankle mortis view should also be assessed. Stage 1 posterior tibial tendon insufficiency is classified by medial ankle pain, no deformity, and the ability to perform a single heel rise. The single heel rise is performed by raising the unaffected foot off the ground and attempting to stand on the toes of the affected foot. In order to accomplish this, the posterior tibial tendon needs to fire, locking the transverse tarsal joint and inverting the hind foot so that force can be transmitted from the hind foot to forefoot. So for stage 1 disease, there's pain, no deformity, and the patient retains the ability to perform a single heel rise. This is typically treated with a walking cast or boot immobilization. As you can imagine, it can be tough to convince patients of this treatment, but it is vital to stem the inflammatory process prior to disease progression. Patients can be transitioned from a boot or AFO after the acute period. Custom-molded shoe orthoses that offer medial arch support and longitudinal arch support are typically chosen. For refractory cases, patients may undergo a tenosynovectomy. Stage 2 disease is subgrouped into stage 2A and 2B. In both categories, the patient will have a pes planus deformity, inability to perform a single heel rise, and possibly pain at the sinus tarsi. As part of their pes planus deformity, they will also have a flexible hindfoot valgus deformity. The difference between 2A and 2B is whether or not any forefoot abduction deformity has occurred. In 2A, the patient will have a normal forefoot. In 2B, the patient has developed a compensatory forefoot abduction deformity, also known as a too-many-toes sign. Forefoot abduction and progression to a 2B deformity is also indicated by greater than 40% of uncoverage of the tailor head on an AP foot radiograph. So again, to recap, for stage 1, there is no deformity and they can still perform a single heel rise. In stage 2 disease, they now have a pes planus deformity with a flexible hind foot and can no longer do a single heel rise. Stage 2A has a normal forefoot and 2B has forefoot abduction. So now let's move on to stage 3 disease. This is easy enough to remember that it includes all of the features of stage 2B disease, but now the patient has developed a rigid hindfoot deformity that is no longer passively correctable and potentially has some subtalar arthritis. This changes the surgical management as now soft tissue procedures are unlikely to work. Stage 3 disease is typically treated with a triple arthrodesis. Stage 4 disease includes all of the features of stage 3 disease, but now the deformity has begun to progress proximally and affect the ankle joint. Progressive collapse of the arch leads to compromise of the deltoid ligament on the medial side of the ankle, which manifests as tailor tilt on the ankle mortis radiographs. So how do we treat all these patients? Patients with stage 2 to 4 disease that are not operative candidates may be treated with ankle and foot orthoses with a medial post to support the collapse of the arch. 
There are several different surgical options for patients that fail conservative management or those that wish to undergo surgical correction. The appropriate procedure depends on the stage of disease present. As mentioned earlier, refractory cases of stage 1 disease can be treated with tenosynovectomy. In stage 2 disease, these patients can be treated with a flexor digitorum longus transfer to the posterior tibial tendon insertion site, a forefoot correcting osteotomy, and a calcaneal osteotomy. If the medial column is stable, as evidenced by a collinear metatarsal navicular, the forefoot corrective osteotomy is typically a dorsal opening wedge medial cuneiform osteotomy, also known as a cotton osteotomy. This will drive the first metatarsal into plantar flexion, helping to recreate the arch. If the medial arch is unstable, the medial column should be fused. In terms of the calcaneal osteotomy, stage 2A is typically treated with a medial displacing calcaneal osteotomy, while stage 2B gets a lateral column lengthening. Many surgeons will repair the compromised spring ligament as well. All procedures in which the patient has developed a hind foot valgus should include an Achilles tendon lengthening procedure as well, as the valgus deformity creates contraction and tightness of the heel cord that must be addressed at the time of surgery. As mentioned earlier, stage 3 disease is treated with a triple arthrodesis, which is easy to remember. Stage 3 gets a triple. And finally, stage 4 disease either gets a deltoid ligament reconstruction if the Taylor tilt is correctable and the joint looks okay, or a tibiotalar calcaneal arthrodesis if there is arthritis at the tibiotalar joint. Alright, so for posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, be able to recognize the stages of treatment. Again, there's a lot. Again, there's a lot in there, but the question writers definitely like to pull material out of this section for examinations. That concludes our talk on tendinopathies surrounding the foot and ankle. Again, there is a lot of information in this talk, but it is highly testable, and time spent studying it will be well worth it. As always, please check back to the lecture for any additions and modifications. Thanks for listening.